Hello, this is co-host Robert. What you're listening to is a rebroadcast of a classic Forgot My Dice episode that originally aired on the Freebooters Network. As always, this content is a year old and covers topics and news that have long since happened, but feel free to check out the show notes on ForgotMyDice.com, join our Patreon, and join us in the Forgot My Dice fans Facebook group. Enjoy the show. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Welcome to another episode of the Forgot My Dice Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Edwards, and with me, of course, is the war beast to my warlock, Mr. Robert Lundgren. Hello, hello. This episode of the Forgot My Dice Podcast is, of course, brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon, such as Brendan, James, and Scott. Thank you so much for helping us keep the lights on and pay all of our bills. Yes, yes, thank you, guys. And if you want to contribute and help us out here at the Forgot My Dice Podcast, please head on over to Patreon and throw us a buck or whatever every month we'd appreciate it yep every little bit helps and goes straight to the show and a quick announcement in regards to our ongoing contest uh over at patreon you guys get a second chance it's not really a second chance like a fourth i i don't even know what it is yeah the freebooters network is having some technical issues right now which means episode 20 as of when we're recording episode 21 has not actually hit the airwaves which was the cutoff to the contest so we can't actually announce a winner because technically the contest isn't over yet somebody can still sneak in and i hope crossing my fingers and my toes that the contest is over by the time this hits the air but yes you get a second chance so we'll have to push the winner to episode 22 sorry everybody in the meantime it is now time for our off the shelf segment and uh, lots of cool stuff that has come off the shelf Robert, why don't you get us started on this one? Any uh, any updates from the non-board game slash RPG side? Yeah, that's like pretty much all I've done. I've watched a lot of movies. Here's the thing. So I've got twins, and my eyes, my eyes are old and tired right now. They're so old and tired. But I've got a new iPad coming, and I am so happy because I'll be able to read when I'm working out again, which was, I just, ever since the boys were born, I'm just like too tired, and I can't focus my eyes like I, and it's the boys. I promise I'm going to read more stuff. So, yeah, that's 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 going to be... I got so much stuff to read. So, I, I have quite the backlog. But I've watched a ton of movies lately. Yeah, you have. Yes, I have. You actually got to the theater, which is rare for both of us. Yes, yes, well, yeah, the, the, the local YMCA has a, a parents' night out once a month. So, we pawned our kids off to the YMCA for five glorious hours, which actually turned into three because the, the, the twins got sick. Which, which sucked, but... They called us right as we were driving to the coffee shop we were planning on spending another hour, uh, an hour and a half at while we were waiting for the kids' time to come up. So it was fine. But we saw Wonder Woman. Well, don't tell me anything. I am going to try and make it to the theaters and see it. Anyway, it was good. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Thumbs up for me. I, I won't say anything. And uh, actually, my uh, Awen got to see it, too. And so she's uh, she's got a touch of Wonder Woman mania. She's yeah, been really... talking about getting a tiara and a sword. <laughs> and it's like... I really want to take my my daughters to see it. I mean, I want to take all my kids, but especially my daughters. My, my only my only thing, if you're thinking about it, is it takes place during World War One, and Diana, you know, she's a superhero and she hits people with a sword, and sh- that is not graphic. She she full on kills a couple people with the sword in the movie, but they don't show like you know their chest flayed open or anything like that. 
But they do show some of the psychoness that surrounded World War One. There are a few people who have, you know, missing limbs and nothing terribly mm. graphic, but it's it's going on. That's been going around because I was wa- – okay, so I'll, I'll go ahead and segue into one of the things I've been watching because it's appropriate to this conversation. Okay. I've started watching Star Wars in chronological order. Right. Just the canon stuff. Right. Okay, so I watched the first two Is there movies. anything not canon that you can watch? Because Clone Wars is canon, Rebels is canon. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But but no, like, you know, the, the holiday special isn't canon. <laughs> Do we even, I kind of like the holiday YouTube. special because it? it... Oh, I have. And oh, it, my God. Yeah, it's a crap show. But it's so bad and it's so awful. It, I kinda, it swings right back around to good again. Yeah, yeah. And I can, I can kind of appreciate it for that. Just... just it's so earnestly bad. Like yeah. these are the actual people doing it and it's so terrible and they kind of know it's terrible, but they're still trying really hard. And it, there's something kind of endearing about that, but why would you watch the holidays? How do you watch that? It's all bootlegs now. It's all on YouTube. It's well, on YouTube and available for watching in all of its terrible glory. And now and if you haven't watched it, let me just tell you, make it a point to go watch it and then go online and talk to us about it because i really want i know isn't it glorious no i'll just cut this part out (laughs) no you're not you're not cutting out the star wars holiday special well then you better bring it up a lot so i can't because then i have to context it i'm gonna make your continuity a living hell okay fine so i found this really awesome chronological ordering online that lets you also this is kind of neat the website actually lets you turn on and off things like the books and the comics and stuff the, the extended canon that is technically part of canon. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've whittled it down to just movies and TV shows. So, so I'm watching them in chronological order. And so it starts with the first two movies, and then you jump into Clone Wars. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, one of the things that happened with Clone Wars is that they were shown out of chronological order. Hmm. And that's fine, because they're all little standalone episodes. But when you start reordering them, there is actually an overarching narrative. The first thing you watch is from season two. And then the second thing you watch is from season one, but they're on the same planet having the same series of battles. And then it it parlays right into the Clone Wars movie, which is where I am now. But the reason I bring this up is because in the Clone Wars movie, there's this scene where um, Jabba the Hutt has hired some bounty hunters to find his son who's been kidnapped. Yeah. And they bring a platter of five bounty hunters' heads in. They're all just severed heads. On a platter, and I'm sitting there watching this thing, and I'm like, "Oh my god, this was a uh, this is an animated movie for children, and those five severed heads." You know what really pisses me off about that movie? You know that awful narrative they have at the beginning? Yes. Yeah, that was supposed to be its crawl, and if you listen to it, it sounds like an opening crawl. And but they do that in every episode, right? But that it should have been the opening crawl because it just doesn't quite feel like a Star Wars movie in a weird way. And if they did the opening crawl, I think I would have as a Star, an older Star Wars fan would have appreciated that movie a little bit better for some reason. I, I don't know. Anyway. I'm having fun watching it all in order. And it, it kind of, uh, it's interesting because they address a lot of stuff on Clone Wars that kind of helps to flesh out some of the holes in the third movie. So it's kind of neat. I just kind of pretend the prequels didn't happen. It's all right. It's all right. You just got to come to come to, to peace with them. When and if I ever get anyone around to it, we're going to do the hatchet method. You know the hatchet method? The, the, the cut with New Hope. Jar Jar? No, no, no. You watch New Hope first. Then you watch Empire. Then you do Attack of the Clones. And you do Revenge of the Sith as like an extended flashback because uh, Empire ends with, you know, no, uh, you know, no, Luke, I'm your father type thing. And then you spend, have an extended like six hour flashback. Yes, indeed. He is the father. And then you go to episode six. And I guess now you go to episode seven. And I don't know where you would watch Rogue One in that. 
That's just DLC. We, I'll, we'll watch that later. For for a first timer, that's the best way to experience it. Because if you watch the prequels first, they reveal the the big twist from two movies yeah. later, and it, it doesn't have any impact. Well, I'm watching them in chronological order, and I'm the only one watching them, so I'm not too worried about it. Well, you, is, you already know the story. This is my prep for uh, episode eight. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so there you go. Anyway, yeah, the only reason I bring it up is because, uh, yeah, after seeing the five severed heads, I'm not so concerned about a couple people being. Uh, crazy. Oh, we're talking about missing limbs and and you know people with bandaged up. Do you know, there's not a single episode of Star Wars that doesn't have somebody losing a limb. I'm just saying, if 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 you're concerned about it, there's one scene in particular where they show a soldier with with his foot missing, and he's freaking out, and his buddies are trying to carry him off the field, and and that's yeah. the thing that happens in it. I guess it's PG-13 for a reason. It is PG-13 for a reason. I yeah, but anyway, it was still good. I liked Wonder Woman quite a bit. Now you borrowed my copy of Logan. I did, which we talked about, D- dude. The wife and I like we went down that rabbit hole. Oh, I forgot to bring it back today. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Anyway, we went down that rabbit hole. We we like we like had a party down there because we watched so, Logan and then we watched Logan Noir, which is awesome. Yeah, I was wondering if you'd watch that Logan Noir. If you don't know, if if you buy like the I don't know if it's the special. It was a, I have no idea. Anyway, no, it's included. Yeah, it's just the black and white version. You know, like they did Mac, Mad Max in black and white, and it's surprising how good it works. Yeah. Like, like the only part that kind of breaks is the end, the the very, very final sequence. Yeah. In the forest, right. because the forest doesn't lend itself very well to black and white, but everything else is like it, it's just so striking. Yeah, no, the the and that movie's so bleak. Really lends itself well to to to. Yeah, the desert especially, but that movie's so bleak, and yeah, black and white makes it so it's, bleaker. It's almost unfair how much better of a superhero movie that is than almost anything else on the market. Yeah, yeah, no, I I completely agree because it's it's. I, I'll, I'll go. It's probably the best superhero movie I've ever seen, but oh, it I, only I so. works. I think so. It only works because you know I saw Hugh Jackman in X Men, you know, seventeen years ago, and I've watched all. Yeah, the- that is the interesting thing, isn't it? A big part of its impact and a big part of how successful it is is because this is the what seventh or eighth movie in the ninth. Series? It's the ninth. Wow. That he no. It's the, he's played Wolverine nine times. Yeah. So 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 you're right in that respect. It it's very effective because of all the movies that come before it. But I think even as a standalone, I mean, it's just. See, I don't know if it would play because the reason you care about Logan and Professor X is because you care about Logan and Professor X because you've seen them in movies and you, yeah. And it just. I don't know if if you tried to do that with just like the Flash, like the first Flash movie is you know uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths and he dies. Like I don't know if it would register as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you know Logan is a very fitting finale. Like if he's going to sail oh, off man, into the sunset, yeah. that's for, a good for way. For both to... him and Patrick Stewart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like if you're going to go out and finish up a series of movies, that's how you do it. I well, mean, it, it's an acting exhibition well and, and it's so rare in hollywood that people contemplate legacy you know because usually it's it, usually the rule in hollywood is only the last sequel doesn't make money yeah do you, you notice one of the things about it is and, and this is compared to every other x-men movie it's a very quiet movie well yeah because they don't have to save the world that's not what that yeah. movie's about but anyway yeah it i just liked it because it, it contemplated legacy it was like finality it it it, it had a lot of angst in it and you just don't get that in a lot of movies because a lot of movies don't have the history that you are bringing to a close and i don't know i mean it's one of those things like i think 10 20 years and 20 years from now assuming they don't screw up the x-men movies with pointless sequels that suck i'm looking at you apocalypse (laughs) um assuming they don't run it into the ground you know people might be kind of just saying like up until boom logan that's just kind of the end and and and, you know it'll be one of those things we're talking about because it, it actually has an end yeah and and that i've i've kind of discovered you know if you have an end to things if things end and it's a finale people are much more 
likely to remember it. I mean, just think, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but any D&D game I've ever run, people talk to me to this day about games I run, I ran where they had an end where we just cut it off and it's like, this is the end of the story and we are done. Yep. There's something about the end that really, you know, cements it in people's minds. So, well, and, and it can also be the, the, the point of contention with people. I mean, think about finales that people hate, like the Seinfeld finale, which was, you know, it, it should have been the perfect way to go out and yet people despised it and hated it. Look at Mass Effect 3. You know, you get to the end of this story and it is an ending, uh, but it, people hated it because yeah, well, I, I yeah, I felt it was terribly off theme. So yeah, yeah, no, we, yeah, but that, that's, that's not, a whole other issue. Yeah, but, but the point is, yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, you do have to get the ending right. But I mean, that's the thing too. Like, it has to really feel like an end. Like this well, and, is, and and that's the thing though. That's the the thing that it, it accomplishes is oh well, it's not just an ending, but it is a proper ending. It is a a a an ending with just the right dash of hope with just the right dash of loss anyway go see it it was really good yeah if you have not seen logan it is perhaps one of the greatest superhero movies if not the greatest superhero movie ever made and it's but the problem is you have to watch every x-men movie to make it work that 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 would be my only complaint about it you do have to watch every x-men movie because you have tells me that that's not going to be a problem for our audience that's true that's true (laughs) um all right so that's that's kind of uh movies uh oh no i have another movie i have another movie one last movie uh me and the kid we went and saw Zathura because they they were having you know kids camp screenings at the local Alamo Draft House. Nice Alamo Draft House, the first theater where you could drink a beer and watch a movie, which is how I got through Twilight. <laughs> oh, there's oh I didn't have that luxury. God, that movie was bad. Oh yeah. Oh 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 oh, 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 oh did I have beers? Yeah, that was the first time I had ever sat in the theater taking the straw out of my cup and trying to sharpen it into an implement that I could cut my own wrists with. No, no. Twilight wasn't that bad. Oh, it, it sure felt like that the first time. Yeah, yeah it was pretty bad. I, I don't really remember. I had a lot of beer that night. But anyway, yeah, so, you know, in the summer, a lot of movie theaters do it. They have cheap screenings, take your kids, blah, blah, blah. So we saw Zathura. I've never seen Zathura before, which is interesting because I've also never seen Jumanji. What? Yeah. And so... Well, you'll get your chance to watch the remake soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Dwayne The Rock Johnson, which will probably be fine. I'll watch anything that man is in. Regardless, uh, I don't know. I liked it. It was fun. I, okay, that's a lie. I caught half of Jumanji on HBO one time, a long time ago. <laughs> Just the one time. Just the one time. Well, maybe. How did you miss Jumanji on I, HBO? I, I have clear <laughs> memories when I was younger that Jumanji was on HBO every 15 and a half seconds. We had three channels of, of it, and I wasn't terribly interested, because I was right at that right age when it came out, where I was a little too old to be its target audience, so I didn't really care. Maybe I did watch. You know what? I actually probably have seen all of Jumanji. I just have not seen it in one go, and so it's kind of forgettable for me. But I like Zathura. It was fun. It's well, Zathura's more up my alley, too. It's sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it's pretty much the same story. Oh, 100%. So how about other geeky stuff? Any video games that have been gracing your, your screen? No, I'm still neck deep in Destiny. And I've been enjoying it. And I realized I haven't been talking about it enough. So I'm going to I'm gonna info dump on all you people right now. So here we go. I got this item called the Nothing Manacles. And they're awesome. If you play Void Warlock, you should get them. They make your sparklies homing. And you'll know what that means if you have them. I've got a gun called the Hopscotch Pilgrim, which is the best name for a gun ever. And I've showed it to you. And you like it. I do. And I'm trying to get farm up a new one because you win it in PvP as a random reward if you finish. Uh, I think you have to win. But um, yeah. I like everything about mine except my scope. My scope just zooms in just a little too close. Just a little too close. I need to pull that scope back because I got three options of scopes. One of them's way too close. The other two are way too far back. I need like the happy middle. I got two uh, exotic guns called Thorn and The Last Word, and they are fun as heck. 
I was on a website called uh, Guardian.gg, which is fun because it has stats. And uh, apparently all the pros are using a gun called the Ias Luna. E-Y-A-S-L-U-N-A. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Ias Luna sounds like a pretty good thing. Yes, they're apparently using that gun, so I'm trying to farm one up. I've gotten five now, and all of them suck because they have random loot. And I want to get the one with the good stuff. And last but not least, people... If you go to Guardians GG or if you watch Overwatch pros or whatever, if you're not a pro, you know, you, you should watch pros because they tell you good stuff. But don't get so caught up in it because, you know what, if you're not playing at the pro level, what the pros do kind of doesn't matter to you. Like the uh, the yes, it's Luna, whatever, gun. I'm going to get one. I'm going to fool around with it because the pros seem to like it. But I'm not going to, like, bet the farm on it because, you know what, I'm not, a, I'm not the high-end Destiny PvP player. So just, yeah, you know, Magic players, whatever game it is. Unless you're actually at that level, you don't really need to follow it. You can kind of do your own thing. You'll probably be fine. That's my public service announcement, and I'm out. Take it away, Jonathan. I don't know. Video games, I've been playing more Battlefield 1. Nothing new to report there. Just having a blast. Um, Looking forward to the new expansion coming out soon. I've been mainlining every little bit of info I can get on Star Wars Battlefront 2. Looks amazing. Um, I've also been playing the Hot Wheels expansion for Forza Horizons 3, Mm. which is awesome. It's giant orange tracks up in the sky above the Australian map, and they've got giant uh, like T-Rexes and stuff that are supposed to be like toys on the ground, and all you do is drive car- Hot Wheels cars, and you do the loops and the... the you yeah, know, the I saw gameplay of that. I thought that was an interesting choice. Oh, man. Uh, so Forza Horizon is the arcade equivalent of the Forza Sim game, right? It's, it's a, a different set of games that takes all of the, the graphics and the beauty of the Forza games, but puts it in a much more arcadey package, which makes it a little more consumable for those folks who do not like uh, a good sim racer that, like I do. That'd be me, but I don't have an X-Bone, so I can't play it. Well, the marriage of that arcadey style with the Hot Wheels license is perfect. It's beautiful. They need to release an entire game around it. It could be brilliant. Still playing Injustice 2. The kids are getting better at it, which means that I, um, I'm not going quite so easy on them anymore. Uh, I never let them win. I always give them a challenge, but I generally let them boost up their supers so that they can uh, throw it. But now I'm not letting them boost up their supers. They're doing a pretty good job on their own. Uh, we continue our Blood Bowl painting antics. I think we've got about one session's worth of painting left, don't you think? Maybe two. I'm not sure. I, I said that last time, but I'll, I believe it. Blood Bowl coming to our table soon. And then beyond that, I sat down and I taught the ki- the older kids Zombicide Black Plague. Yeah, yeah, you've been posting stuff on that. Huge hit. They love it. And what I like is it forces them to work together. You know, this is actually not a shocker. You've been posting this on our Facebook page lately. And our Twitter feed. Yeah, which is weird because normally I, I handle both of those and I see things. And I'm like, am I, am I going crazy? Am I posting pictures that... I don't remember taking? No. Am I Mr. Hiding? <laughs> it's the, the rare moment where I remember to grab my phone and take a picture of what I was doing. Whoa. Zombicide Black Plague, is, it's such a great revision to the Zombicide rules. And then I tried a new game. Mm. It's called Potion Explosion. <laughs> um, and it's from Simon. So it's a game very reminiscent of like a Bejeweled, if you remember Bejeweled on... Uh, or, yeah, I remember yeah, Bejeweled. Yeah, okay. I was so, a master of that on Facebook, yo. You have this cardboard tray that orbs come out of and they come out in five different lines and these orbs come out in a variety of different colors and so you remove one orb on your turn and if two of the same colors smash together as the orbs settle on the track then you get to take those as well and so you can create these big chain reactions and these orbs are the ingredients to your potions 
And so there's four different colors. There's red, there's blue, there's black, and there's yellow. And so you take, um, you're taking these orbs and you put them into your, your beakers, so to speak. And every potion has a recipe card. And the recipe card tells you how many of each color that you need to get. You manufacture the, um, the recipe. And then you can actually use that potion in the game to do things like take a, an ingredient of any color that you have and change it to a different color so that you can fulfill the needs of another potion, etc. The potions also come with a point value associated with them, so that that's how you get your, your victory points, is by creating potions. It's really neat. I'm really having a great time with it, and recently I found out that they now have an app available for it, which is actually surprisingly good as well. I tried the app out, and it captures the flavor of the game so well. Do you own this game? No, I was playing it with a buddy of mine. It's can you steal the game from your buddy? I can certainly try. Okay. I'm really having a good time with that. I think Potion Explosion is really, really nifty. It's a great game. I was having a blast with it. So that's Potion Explosion from Simon. I highly recommend it. I was having a blast with it. And then the last thing I did was I picked up the rule book to Near and Far, which just recently came in the mail. Uh, it was the fulfillment of my Kickstarter. Now, you know, and if you've listened to the show at all, you'll know that I'm a big Ryan Lockett fan. I, I really like his games. I've got everything he's made. We, we covered this Kickstarter way, way back on, yes. on like pilot 01 or 02. Yeah, I believe so. And um, so Near and Far is now in my hands. And let me tell you what an interesting game it is. Rather than a game board, you get this atlas and you open yeah, up the yeah. atlas. And you were showing me. It was cute. And there are all these little like points. Yeah. And then you like flip the page when you get done and it's little it's little stories. It's so so it's, it's, it's telling you a, a story of your continual travels. And so at the end of every round, you turn the page of the atlas and you move to the next section of maps. And that's like getting a brand new game board rather than a traditional cardboard game board. Um, and, and then the let story me tell you, is so thick. Let me tell you, easy expansion fodder. Just print out yeah. a couple new books. Yeah. So brilliant. So, Jonathan, let me ask you a question. Mm. Is the next in the series going to be called, like, Dry and Moist? I have no idea. Okay. Something tells me no. No? I mean, I'm just going on a limb here, but... Uh, well, near and far, no. above and below, Dry and Moist. It fits. I am waiting for uh, Empires of the Void 2. That Kickstarter funded about uh, six to eight weeks ago, and I'm just chomping at the bit for a ryan lockett uh 4x game the one i've been excited about ever since we covered it was the one by uh scythe guy that he was going to release in retail where you build the game oh, as you go. yeah yeah that does look awesome that looks i i'm still thinking about that game i actually want to play that which is weird i'm not normally a board game guy but that one's warmed its way into my noggin and won't go i think side really won you over because you really like that game i did really like that game and i i you know uh, I've got to play Viticulture with you. I think you'll like Viticulture because it's you can see a lot of the DNA from Scythe in there. Viticulture came out first. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Uh, and and it's it's interesting because a game about making wine shouldn't work, but it it really works so well. Yeah, my wife came up to me the other day and she's like, "Are you are you sure you're meaning to use the word sublime when you describe Scythe?" And I'm like, "Gina, if you haven't played that game, you wouldn't know." sublime is an accurate i looked up yeah. the dictionary definition and it's so good that you can't even calculate it and i'm like yeah no that was scythe well and we are going to have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about scythe in the news which is going to be in just a moment oh my god you're Locked referencing the future you'll have to keep <laughs> listening to know what we mean well and the last little bit of geeky goodness that i had robert was um we i think we've talked about it on the show before i'm a big fan of we have never talked about this no, on the show before i, I would remember off the air comments yes this was off the air because then i said they made a role-playing game about it and i was curious and i wanted to read the comic and then you told me well i have the this was in chat yes this was in chat yes and you said i could read the where are those comics 
they released recently some compendiums uh, in hardback. Don't have them. And I ordered. Uh, you lies to two. us, Baggins. Well, I have them if you want to read them in softback, and they're autographed by the... uh, Oh, I don't want to mess up an autograph. Okay, never mind. I will wait. But I ordered the the I won't go full Gollum I got volume two first, which is awkward, because I really wanted to start rereading them at the beginning. Yeah, that would make sense. You mentioned in that chat that the they had made an RPG of the Red Star. Yeah, yeah. I had never heard about. It was a little teeny tiny company that did it. uh, Green Ronin. Okay, maybe it wasn't a little teeny tiny company that did it. Yeah, no, it was Green Ronin. Wow. Oh, it was part of their Mythic Vistas line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I completely forgot Green well, Ronin made this. Yeah, so when you mentioned that the Red Star had a RPG that I had never heard about, I instantly went on Amazon and ordered a copy of it um, from a used bookstore, and it finally came in. And so I've been reading that in my spare time, and man, it's got me excited. I really want to run a campaign in it. Yeah, the system it uses is D20 Modern, right? Yes. So I had to order a D20 Modern core book, too. Fun. I, I never actually played D20 Modern, and I always wanted to. I liked the idea of it. So I've got my D20 Modern Core rulebook, which I'm going to read, and then I'm going to read through the Red Star Core rulebook so that I understand context and stuff, and I'm really excited. I think it's, it's going to be cool. You're, you're playing Pathfinder. You'll be able to pick it up pretty good. It, it, yeah. it has some worried. subtle differences, but not yeah, it's, not, it's not crazy. All right. Well, that is it for, the, uh, for my off-the-shelf. Anything else from you? Hmm. No. No. Like All I said, right. can't wait for that iPad because I got a bunch of PDFs I need to read. <laughs> and I just haven't been go. able to because my eyes are so old now with twins. Just so tired. Oh, you poor thing. So broken and tired. Well, you'll get an opportunity to rest them as we are going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. And when we return... It's going to be all about the wisdom of crowds, which is bursting at the seams this week. And now a quick word from our sponsors, Geek Nation Tours. And man, do they have an amazing tour coming up. This one all about Essen, a tour through Germany. Now, of course, it's all going to culminate in a fantastic couple of days at the Essen Game Show, which, of course, is legendary in and of itself. But before then, you get almost 10 days worth of activity all throughout Germany. You get to go to Munich, and in Munich you're going to get a chance to play Dominion and be joined by Rodney Smith from the Watch It Played YouTube channel. And mind you, the entire time you're in Munich, you're going to be enjoying Oktoberfest, which is legendary in and of itself. You're going to get to see castles that inspired games like Castles of Mad King Ludwig. You're going to get to see all the areas that inspired places like Settlers of Catan. And you're going to get an opportunity to go through many, many German cities, learning all about both the country and all the games that it inspired. And of course, it all culminates with a bunch of days at the Essen Game Show, which is the be-all, end-all of all European gaming. So take a look at GeekNationTours.com for all the information on the Essen Tour. Do you have a tabletop, board game, miniature game, or RPG that you're going to release for retail? Or do you have an upcoming tabletop Kickstarter that you're about to launch? We would love to interview you for a future episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Send us an email to fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com to schedule an interview. Alright, and we are back, and it is now time for our tabletop news and Kickstarter section, The Wisdom of Crowds. 
lots of good stuff and amazing stuff now. Uh, we are definitely in con season because the, the plug has come out of the news dam and we're now being inundated. <laughs> I know, it's bad. And it's award season. It's more award season. Yes, so let's go ahead and get started with one of the biggest industry awards. The nominees are up for the Diana Jones Award. Okay, so a long, long time ago, back in the far, far away, there was a TSR distributor in England and the Indiana Jones uh, role-playing game the license expired. And so basically the British guys took a big pile of Indiana Jones box sets and burned them because that's what you got to do because they couldn't sell it. They could, they had to just destroy it and they destroyed it by fire, which is the superior form of destruction. And so somebody swept up all the leavens that were left. And one of the things that was left were like little Indiana Jones tokens and the inn in Indiana had uh, burned away. So we were left with Diana Jones and they put that in a pyramid of Lucite and then now it's an industry award that's been going on for like 10 years or so now. And, and it's a big deal. The industry is really, really behind it. Like they, they, it's a very special award. Yeah, yeah. So the way it works is if you win it, you get to keep it on your mantle or whatever for one year. And apparently it weighs a ton. When Gen Con happens, they award it. And so you got to bring it back to Gen Con and then you pass it on to whoever wins the next one. And Gen Con's coming up in about six weeks, seven weeks. So uh, it is definitely time for nominees. Yeah, yeah. So they announced the short list or whatever you want to call it of the this year's award nominees and it is an eclectic bunch i like yes. it all right well let, let's let's go back and forth here some of them you know about and some of them i know about so and then this first one is just plain weird and awesome so our first nominee here is the beast the beast is an unsettling erotic journaling game for one player <laughs> journaling yep each day for 21 days you turn up a card with a prompt on it and write a response in your journal the game takes you deep into imagining imagining a disturbing secret sexual relationship you have with a beast so if there's one thing you don't see much of in this hobby it's meaningful interior narratives and the beast's weird unique brew of dark transgressions playing as a fictional version of yourself and journaling the results somehow surfaces real untold truths in how the world works and yes the beast is up for the diana jones award kick it over to you jonathan well, one of the ones that I know about very well is, of course, Gen Con. Gen Con, the entire convention, which is now in its 50th iteration, is up for a Diana Jones Award, which it's hard for me to believe that in the past 10 years it hasn't come up yet. Well, Peter Atkinson won the first year, and I think he, I don't know if he still owns Gen Con, but he, he bought it out from Wizards when he sold Wizards to Hasbro, so... Maybe maybe he's already had the the thing, but now he gets it again. I don't know if he still owns it right now. Anyway, so he's a he certainly did a good job of growing it. Yes, like like I said, it's a weird list. So uh, coming up next is one of my personal fa- favorites: the end of the line, Vampire the Masquerade LARP. Because as as the little blurb here says, end of the line is the most interesting thing to happen to vampire in a long while. It combines two decades long traditions of LARP. American Masquerade, and Nordic-style LARPing. So yes, this is like a love affair between Nordic and American LARPing. And it's I up for a Diana Jones Award. Such a thing. I, I haven't had a chance to research it yet, but I'm like, what's so special about know, Nordic LARPing, right? right? That's the first thing that I thought about, too. <laughs> it's like, you know, LARPing is its own thing, but, like, how can you build upon that? I guess the Nords really got the, it's the, the corner on the It's the, the Reese's Pieces of LARPing. It's got the American chocolate and the Nordic uh, peanut butter. You put it together, and you get the end of the line. You'll never guess what I'm uh, Googling right now. Uh, either Gloomhaven or Terraforming Mars. No, Nordic LARPing. <laughs> <laughs> the other two I know about. See, now we're going to become an educational NordicLARP.org. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> an educational program. Nordic-style LARP is dramatically different from LARP in other parts of the world. Nordic LARPers want to feel like they are really there. This includes creating a truly convincing illusion of physically being in a medieval village, on a spaceship, a World War II bunker, etc., 
They want to be in their character's skin to, quote, feel their feelings. Dreaming in character at night is seen by some Nordic LARPers as a sign of, a, of an appropriate level of immersion. Okay, so these are method LARPers. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. They are method LARPers. <laughs> okay, right on. I love it. This, this picture that they've got here is crazy. Like, these guys are, like, full-on regalia. Okay, well, I said NordicLARP.org out loud, so I guess that's going to be in the show notes. <laughs> Dear listeners, you're welcome. All right, well, next up is a game that really just shook the pillars of Kickstarter, uh, and that is Gloomhaven. The, this one blew my mind. Not that it kickstarted and made money, because it kickstarted and made all the money. But Home Skillet wanted to reprint it. He didn't even really make a second edition. I know he revised some rules, but he just basically was like, I'm going to put it back on Kickstarter again. <laughs> Which is kind of becoming a thing. Yeah, yeah. A lot of games do that that second print run. Yeah, yeah, and, and he did it. I think he had some new expansions and stretch goals, well, but yeah, yeah. And I'm okay with it, because you know what? The, the first print run was, was good. He had a very successful Kickstarter with the first one. The aftermarket prices on the game had just skyrocketed out of control. Yeah. And by doing the second printing, he bottomed out the secondhand market, which is fine. I think that's fair. 40,642 people backed the second printing. It made almost 4 million bucks. So yeah, Gloomhaven, up for a Diana Jones Award. So next up, I'll talk to you about The Romance Trilogy by Emily Care Boss, published by Black and Green Games. So Emily did indie games, and she did three of them called Breaking the Ice, Shooting the Moon, and Under the Skin. What these basically do is uh, she had a really good interview on some random episode of uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff that I listened to, which I really liked. I'll try to find that one again, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes if I can. The one sort of element that's missing in a lot of role-playing games is, is a lot of people are kind of uncomfortable with uh, role-playing romance. And so those three games are basically romantic role-playing games where you start role-playing romantic scenes out. Your mileage may vary on how you feel about that, but that's what those three games are. They say... Uh, the Romance Trilogy acts as both a mission statement and a platform to further explore the implications of the original three games. Its publication gives the committee the opportunity to recognize Emily's enormous contribution to tabletop role-playing. And that's the thing, too. I've heard this game come up a lot. The Romance Trilogy, not on our side of thing, but like industry people have heard of this game and read it. Again, that is The Romance Trilogy by Emily Kerboss, nominated for a Diana Jones Award. And rounding us out, the final thing. And the final thing is Terraforming Mars, uh, a game by Jacob, and I'm not even going to try his last name, Frixilus? Frixilus? F-R-Y-X-E-L-I-U-S. If you know how to pronounce it, please go to our Facebook page or our forums and let us know, because I have no idea how to say it. It is a game all about terraforming Mars, of course. It was published in the U.S. and actually, I believe, worldwide by Stronghold Games. Man, it's been taking the board game world by storm. It hasn't left the hotness since it was released on Board Game Geek, and it's currently ranked number eight. So that's uh, that's Terraforming Mars by Stronghold Games, up for a Diana Jones Award. And that rounds out the six nominees for the Diana Jones Award. Moving on with the news, this is something that you brought up, Robert, and that is the Vampire the Masquerade playtest kit is live. They want people to read it. They want people to play it. They, they have a survey for what do you think of it. And it was funny because I remember Ken Heights said this isn't the storyteller system, and, and that's kind of a filthy lie. It is. It's the same thing. You build a dice pool. You're trying to roll six or higher. It kind of takes that innovation that kind of the second edition World of Darkness games did, uh, where it, it, that one was roll over seven. But yeah, it's it's six six to ten is, is a success. But it, it follows the main things. It's like, you know, you have the same nine stats. You have a very similar skill system. You, put, you plug a skill. You plug a stat. You mash them together. You roll dice. Um, it looks very much like the classic system the thing that i really dug when i was reading it it was how they handled vampire hunger 
And yeah, and you were blood. telling me about this uh, earlier. That that is a awesome mechanic. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things, like we talked about uh, a couple episodes again, our last episode. I don't remember when I mentioned it, but uh, vampire really got to this point where people it was like a superhero origin story because there wasn't really a bad part to being a vampire in in the original game kind of and this one they kind of bring that back to the the front that it's this is a curse and so in the old game the way they handled it was uh you had a blood pool i think every vampire in the original game had 10 blood and waking up for the day cost you a blood using your powers cost you blood and if you ran out of blood you could frenzy or do whatever and then you topped yourself off by eating humans you know like you do in this one, the way they do it is you have hunger dice, and every so often you make hunger checks. And the way you do that is, okay, so say we do, you know, we're doing a scene and we parlay and, and I, I, I get shot and I heal myself up and then I go mess somebody up and I use my powers. You basically tick yourself off every time you use your vampiric powers. And then after combat's done, after that scene's over, when you're kind of moving on to something else, you roll a hunger check. And the way you roll a hunger check is you take... All those check marks, you grab the appropriate amount of 10-sided red dice because it's hunger dice. It should be red, darn it. And then you roll. And anything over a six is fine. It doesn't affect you. But anything below six adds to your hunger pool. And basically, the more dice you have in your hunger pool, the more likely it is that something bad will happen to you and you'll go crazy and try to eat everything around you. It's just a really good mechanic because it's kind of like a push-your-luck thing almost in a way because... When you're doing things like the bad effects of using up all your powers isn't going to hit you right away. It's going to hit you after everything's said and done. And then, you know, maybe you, you do this cool combat, but you gain a whole bunch of hunger dice and you roll poorly and your character goes crazy. And then so the, the, the storyteller or whatever they call the GM in this system, you know, decides to be evil. And the next thing you do is the next scene is you wake up after you've gone on some sort of feeding frenzy and you've killed three people and, and <laughs> drained them dry. Something along those lines. You know, I, I don't know. I just, I, I like, I, I actually want to play this, which is fun. Because I played the original Vampire a couple times, and, and this one, I like I like the way they handle it better. So Yeah, I've been waiting for this in Werewolf. Yeah, so I'm I, really excited. It, to it see makes me it hopeful that Werewolf, because I, 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 I'm not a huge fan of Werewolf the Apocalypse. Because that's the thing, too. Like, that, that one was all about being a monster, but it, it seemed like you could game your way out of that, uh, the rage stuff, if you knew what you were doing. And I, I'm hoping they don't let that happen. That's my thoughts on it. You can form your own. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes to it if you haven't found it already. Yes. That is Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition Playtest is now live with a survey and a character sheet. And moving along, it looks like Magic the Gathering is getting another revamping on how they're releasing sets. Robert, tell us all about it. So Magic, for a real long time, released sets in a very, very formulaic way. They would release a core set, typically in the summer. And they would release a new block. And the new block would typically be one big set. And a big set is about 260 cards. And then typically it was two little sets. Sometimes it was another big set. A little set has about 180 cards. And I know that sounds like a lot, but you got to factor in that, you know, the token cards, which there are a ton of in, in any set, count as pieces of art. Um, the lands, which there's usually four variants of every land in, you know, all the basic lands, those count. So, you know, those add up. So when you have a small set, you know, you're, you're already talking about like 30, 40 cards off the top are just stuff that you don't really think about all that much. And so, and they follow that format for years, for years. And just recently, uh, they changed that. And the way they changed it was they got rid of corsets because corsets weren't selling well because corsets kind of suck. And they would release a big set and a little set as a block. And when I say a block, a block typically means uh, the set exists on one world. So if you've heard us talk about Zendikar or if you've heard us talk about Kaladesh, those are blocks. They, th- those are magic cards that spend some time in that world. Uh, a couple of years ago, they changed it. They decided to drop the third set in a block because they always were having problems with those third sets. They were always the lowest selling sets. They were having problems. So they went with the two box set where they'd have a big set and a little set, and then they would move on to a different world. 
And they liked that because they got to go to a lot of different worlds and it was really pushing them creatively. But then people, they had the problem that, you know, reprinting cards wasn't as easy as they thought because corsets are real good for repeating random or for reprinting random cards that you want in standard. And so they're changing everything again, uh, which will start for Magic's 25th anniversary, which is coming up next year. Wow. And the way they're going to... God, gonna... that makes me feel old because I remember when Magic started. Yeah, yeah. The way they're going to do it now, they're going to have a core set again in the summer. The core set is going to be a small set. And then all the other sets of the year are going to be large sets. They may spend three, four, five, who knows how many card sets on a world if they think they can push it out that far. They may only spend one. But that'll be the new format. It'll be three big boxes set on different worlds, then the core set, which will be a bunch of random stuff, and the core set will be designed for newer players. I don't know. I think it's really weird. Like After like a decade, at least, if not more, of doing it this one way, You know, two years ago, they changed it. Now, after like a year or two of feedback, they're changing it again, which is it, which I think is really good because it it they want to try something new because they're identifying problems. And two, when they when whatever they change it to, uh, they obviously felt it wasn't working and they changed it again. Which like Bravo to Wizards, like you know, messing around with with the machine of Magic, which is their biggest thing ever, doing this to it. I I got to give them credit. Like that that's a really that that's kind of a brave thing to do because. Normal. I don't. I don't think most companies would be, even be willing to like touch that one. But they're like, no, no. no I mean, I think Wizards has been on a tear with uh, not being afraid of of trying new things. I mean, I think uh, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth really shows that. And so, uh, two no- more news bites out of Wizards. One, the 25th anniversary set next year is going to go back to Dorminia, which was their first world that you know, like revised and all those took place on. In uh, one of the blocks, it got closed off forever, supposedly because of story reasons. But they're like, screw it, we're going back for the 25th anniversary, which is cool because we'll get an art book and maybe we'll get Plane Shift or Minya. Yes. But yeah, that's pretty cool. And then the second one, out this December, Jonathan, uh, you're, you, you've dabbled in magic. Have you ever heard of Unglued or Unhinged? No. All right, you're in for a treat, Jonathan. So a, a long time ago, they released a joke set. I think the first one was called Unglued. And it's joke cards. Oh, nice. It's it's just silly cards. Like, you play it. Like, there's one, like, the clam band, and if you play it on somebody, they have to get up and dance, and <laughs> there, there's all these goofy cards, uh, Chaos Confetti, and everybody really liked that set, not the least of which is they, it had really cool lands as part of it, and none of the cards were in standard or any format ever. They were silver-bordered. They were, these are for funsies. Go have fun. Go do something silly. One, one of the coolest cards they ever had was the, the big friggin' monster, which was so big, it actually ha- you had to summon it on two cards, so you couldn't actually attack or do anything <laughs> with it until you cast both halves of it. And it, I think it was like a 99-99 or something like that. It was absurd. But yeah, yeah, there, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of cool stuff in those two sets. They, this December, are releasing Unstable. The third part of the Unglued, Unhinged, Unstable it. Trilogy. I love it. It'll be a limited time thing. Once it's gone, it's gone. It'll have goofy cards in it. If you want to play a goofy magic game, man, go for it. All right. Well, moving right along. Um, speaking of companies that are messing with formulas. Yes. Privateer Press is going to town with their formula. Yes. Changing it. And this is all on the heels of, of the big changes with Mark III last year, which parlayed into the big changes of no more cards, which we've talked about on the show before. Yes. Eliminating all the stat cards in a physical form and making them digital only. Well, you, you can print them now. They have a, they have a thing, on the, the card something. It's on their website now. But you can, yeah, you can print yeah. the cards now. But not, not widely available. You've got to seek out the print. And they yeah, yeah. very clearly want you to be digital only. Right, right. They are changing No Quarter, which is their magazine, into No Quarter Prime. And they're starting over at issue one, like any good comic book company would do. There you go. The original plan, which they have already kind of launched in retail, is to have 
individual books for the different forces. They're still doing that. Okay. But what they were going to do after that... Okay, so this, this is the thing. It was the themed armies, The right? themed forces, yeah. yeah. So how they were going to expand the armies in the future going forward after they got all the forces of books out, they were going to release these theme books, which would have three theme forces in them, which would have all new models, and all the models would come out at the same time, yada, yada, yada. And that appears to be gone now. They have completely scrapped that idea. They are not printing any books anymore, except... We'll get to that in a minute. So all of that content now is going over to No Quarter Prime. So the very first issue of No Quarter Prime is going to have the beginnings of what was probably the Signar uh, theme forces book. The Trencher one, right? Yeah, they're going to have a Trencher theme force, which will have all new models, which they're, they're playtesting actually right now. It'll have a new caster, which will be uh, Siege, th- uh, Siege 2. It's got new Trencher models. It's got all this stuff. It's going to have painting guides. Basically, everything that you would spend, which in, if it was a print book, would probably be a $20 book, you now get as an 850 magazine. That's cool. Which is probably not a bad plan. No, I think that makes it a lot more accessible. The other thing they said, they are going to release a new army yearly at this point. That is their new plan. So uh, Lock and Load 2018, they're going to have a, a new Forces of book, and it will be a completely new army. So they're basically, they're kind of doing what what other people are doing. So Because Games Workshop, Caradon Overlords is a big release for 17, but they're not planning on expanding the line at all. Mm. They're just releasing the entire force, and that's it. And so, you know, Grim a lot of people are really way. freaking out online, like, a, uh, like really well, freaking sure, out. Sure, because it's change and the Internet does not handle change well. Somebody on Party Foul pointed this out. So in 2013, they released Convergence of Sirius. In 2014, they released the Cephalix uh, Mercenary Army. 2015 was nothing of note, although they were probably deep in third edition at that point. Uh, 2016 was Mark III. And then 2017 is Grimkin. So... You know, in the last five years, they've released three new armies, essentially. It's not like this is new in a weird way. It makes me a little worried, too, because it's like, you know, you're going to keep adding all these new models and, and these new armies and, like, how is this going to work? And, you know, it's that kind of fear of the unknown. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. It, it's interesting, though. It's interesting. It's it's definitely... They're up to something new, which is which is interesting. So we'll see how it pans out. So next up, Jonathan, you actually sent this to me yes the origins winners were announced so we got there's probably uh, a ceremony there were probably flowers given i'm sure there were i don't know about flowers but certainly a ceremony an after party probably with booze so let's go ahead and take a look at who won and we'll start with card game of the year and that went to mystic veil which is that game had a really interesting mechanic the the cards are see-through and so you're basically creating your own cards Accessory of the year went to the Blood Rage organizer, which I've seen and and covet in a big way because that would let me kind of slim down my shelves. Best collectible card game went to Pokemon XY11 Steam Siege, which I literally know nothing else about. This was the one that prompted a lot of discussion out of us. RPG of the year, you thought Seven C had the lock on this. I really did. And in I fact, really, really you, did. I think I don't know if I kept it in the episode, but you think that the winner wouldn't win. I think you said that out loud. No thank you, Evil picked up RPG of the year. Which is good for them. Which is That's interesting. Phenomenal. Which is interesting. And and you were like, I, we were talking about this. Uh, and you, you just say what you said to me. I can't remember. Oh, you just said you didn't get why Seven C didn't win. Then I told you, well, look look at No Thank You Evil from an industry perspective. It's a game aimed at kids to try to get them into role playing. Of course, they would like that. It's it's expanding the hobby, and it's good. It's a really really good teach your kids how to role play games so i could see why they liked it so what'll be interesting is how this compares to the ennies because the ennies are the people choice awards it's the one that people get to vote on and this one is the industry insiders so we'll see kind of the divide i guess in the masses and the industry 
Well, Family Game of the Year went to a game that I have not tried yet, and I don't know anything about, and that's called Happy Salmon. But it's got a great box. Have you seen the box? No, hold on. Okay. <laughs> I'm almost terrified. <laughs> Isn't that great? That is fantastic. <laughs> it's a happy salmon. It's only $10.49? And you get a happy salmon. Oh, it's a zipper bag. Yeah. God, I'm having a hard time not just clicking on this and buying it. It won Family Game of the Year. You can play it with your kids. Look at that happy salmon. That bag is fantastic. It is fantastic. <laughs> All right. So, happy salmon. I'll have to do some research. I'll, I'll tell you what I find. <laughs> And then right. sweeping the awards. Yes. So now the big two categories: board game of the year and game of the year, and they both went to the same game. And this is a I game called that, it. This is a game that that we both love. In fact, it earns rare praise from Robert because Robert is not a huge board game guy. Sublime. Yes. Sublime. That's a strong word coming from Robert. Yeah. Is side. Yeah. Game of the year and a board game of the year. Man, it earned it. It earned it in every way. It is yeah, incalculably I'm, I'm, awesome. And I'm totally comfortable with that pick because I think that uh, the game is just, it's its expertly constructed. It's super easy to learn and teach, and yet it's infinitely deep. There's a lot of different ways that you can win. The design of it is exquisite. It's yeah. its just amazing. So, yeah, so, Scythe. I, I, well earned. Well, well earned, Jamie Stegmeyer. Yes, agreed. All right, well, moving on. Now, RPG news, and this is... <laughs> This is something that both you and I stumbled upon independently of one another. And oh, oh, I want it so bad, I but do I can't too. bring I myself to it. it. I can't it's, do it. It's five hundred and five dollars uh, MSRP. Let's anybody out there in there. FMD land that wants to buy us a gift, send us a message, and I will give you an address you can send this to. Yes, and we will gladly cover it extensively. I, I, and I, I will, I will even pay for the shipping if you get this, this box for free. <laughs> I will, I will, PayPal. I'll send you cash. Write you a check. Whatever you need, baby. I will. I, if you get this for me, I will make that happen. Well, this is, of course, the Star Trek RPG Borg Cube. $505, and that gets you a bunch of stuff. It gets you the Borg box. It gets you the limited edition 1701-D rulebook. It gets you four sets of 32mm scale minis, including the original series crew, the next generation crew, a Klingon warband, and a Romulan strike team. Three custom sets of Star Trek Adventures dice in Command Red, Operations Gold, and Science is Blue. Each contains a 20-sided dice and four six-sided challenge dice. It comes with laser-engraved tokens, a pad of 50 reversible character sheets in color, folded poster of the Alpha and Beta Quadrants, six double-sided laminated reference sheets for bridge positions on one side and player aids on the other, a foam tray with 40 compartments for the Star Trek Adventures minis, and enough for all four sets included in the cube, and then some. Yes, because as they get people to pre-order this, they're adding in more minis. Right now, all you get extra is lore, but if they hit a certain threshold, they'll start. They'll throw more minis in there. And an exclusive giant Borg edition game master screen. Yes. So, do you get a lot for your five hundred and five dollars? Yeah. 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 I don't have five hundred and five dollars. I've got five hundred and five dollars, but this that would clear out my gaming budget between now and, and at least early two thousand eighteen. Yeah, I'm kinda in the same boat. Yes, I could make the five hundred dollars happen, but that would be a huge chunk of my future gaming budget. Yeah, and I got I got magic shoe coming up and stuff. But again, send all pa- packages care of FMD. <laughs> Address them to Robert, not Jonathan. <laughs> I'm the RPG guy. I get dibs on that. 
All right, and one final bit of news before we get to Kickstarters, and that is our continuing coverage of Bob Ross. I started watching Bob Ross again. Uh, oh, I did too. It was I'm so not good. Lie. It was so good. He had. I forgot that he took care of squirrels. So- <laughs> he, he has. He, 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 he rescues baby orphan squirrels, and then he has them on the show, and he feeds them with bottles, and you know what they are? They're, you know what they are? They're, they're, happy, happy little squirrels. they're happy little squirrels. Happy little squirrels. And I didn't realize the titanium white thing, and we started watching it, and then he was like, here's a list of all the paints that we're using, so you can just follow along at home. They're at the bottom of the screen. First one, titanium white. First always. thing my wife always. says, first thing is like, always. I forgot how much he likes titanium white. <laughs> So, continuing our Bob Ross coverage, uh, Funko Pop is putting out a Bob Ross Funko Pop. Yes. Yeah, so not really our normal uh, news coverage, but uh, it's not often that we get to talk about Bob Ross in not one but two episodes in a row. So, Bob Ross, the Funko Pop figure now available. And, Universe, I'm looking at you. Can we go for a three-peat in episode 22? It's up to you, Universe. (laughs) It's up to you. All right, well, let's move into our Kickstarter coverage, and uh, we're going to kind of blow through a bunch of games here. We're not going to go into our normal deep coverage because of the extreme wealth of news. All right, well, our first game that is on Kickstarter right now, and you can back right now, it's already funded. It funded in the first 48 hours, and then it's called Lucidity, the Six-Sided Nightmares, and it is a push-your-luck-style dice game. And the Um, dice are real pretty. Yeah, they are. That was the first thing I noticed. over 80 custom dice, which is awesome. It's uh, nearing that magical thousand backer level. It's almost at uh, $26,000 as of the time that we're recording, with a full 29 days left to go. So uh, this is clearly getting manufactured. So it's two to four players, 20 to 30 minutes, ages 14 and up. It's got some really fantastic art. It, the whole thing takes place in, in while you sleep. It's a, a dream thing. There is no really bad way to go about it, because if you get eliminated from the game, you actually become a nightmare, which is kind of awesome. Hmm. The dice represent dreams that you draw from your bag, and they come in several different colors, which uh, works into the mechanics of the game. You get to choose the path of what dreams that you want to take, so basically choosing the color of the dice that you keep, and you have to return some to the bag that you're not going to use, and you then roll them out and put them on your card. Depending on your results, that forces you down a path in the game. This is a super affordable game, $29 U, uh, US with free shipping, which is phenomenal. And that, that's you'd be hard-pressed to find a better value. It looks awesome. And that is Lucidity, Six-Sided Nightmares. Moving right along, um, we are getting a board game from an RPG that we covered and loved, and that is The Seventh Sea, War of the Cross. This is the game I missed out on playing with John Wick at ChupacabraCon because I couldn't get eight people together. You told me that it is in the the vein of diplomacy. Yeah, yeah. It's a game famous for making you hate the people you play with. Yeah, yeah. I shared that story about my pop in a previous episode at the Gaming Con. Actually, that was last episode. That'd be episode 20. Yep. So, in this game, you take on one of the na- nations of Thea. You've got Avalon, Castile, Eisen, Ustria, Vadece, whatever. Anyway, yeah. All, all the all the main kingdoms from the 7th role-playing game are there. And you are nation-building, essentially. You have a little territory that you start out with, and you're trying to get everything else. And it is in the vein of diplomacy, because they, they talk about all the phases of the game, and one of them is definitely like, yeah, you know, scratch my back, I'll scratch your But you are not bound to those alliances if you want to stab someone in the back. You get eight hero miniatures, over 80 army and navy miniatures. Uh, the army miniatures look like little horse heads, and the navy miniatures look like little ships. Uh, treasure cards, story cards, hero ability cards, alliance cards, a full-color rulebook, 
245 double-sided order tokens, 105 control tokens, 70 supply tokens, 7 VP tokens, and so much more. Yeah, so as you can see, this is a fully featured game. It's a combination of territory control and negotiation, and uh, it does come with a pretty hefty price. It's $100 uh, for the base level. And that is the only pledge level available, which I love. I love an easy Kickstarter. And any stretch goals you get on, get you get on top of that. Just hundred bucks, drop it, boom, you're done. He wants one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and as of right now, the Kickstarter hasn't launched because I got a preview screen of this because yes. I pay attention on Facebook when and, somebody linked it. <laughs> it should be launching in the next twenty four hours, I believe. Right? Yeah, so Tuesday, it'll it'll be up for. Uh, yeah, by but, the time this episode comes out, it'll be up for about a week. Yeah, it'll have just been out for a week. Once again, 7C, War of the Cross, Diplomatic Strategy Game, coming to you from John Wick. All right, well, moving right along, next up we're going to be talking about Kaladar, Dreams of the Air. So I have talked about this coming out forever, and now it is live. Kaladar uh, was created by Bruce Hurd. It is kind of his love letter to what he used to do for the old school, original, just Dungeons and Dragons game, you know, the one where Elf is a class. What he did in Dragon Magazine was he oversaw the writing, and I think he did a lot of them himself, where he would write a story about the crew of a flying boat called the Princess Ark and their wacky adventures. And then the second half of it would be an article about all the game stuff, like the country they went to, items, stuff. It was really loved. They condensed it all into a box set, which is really expensive now, and I've thought about getting several times. It was a really cool series. And and old school D&D Mistara just adds this weird... It's a weird setting, but it, it, there's something about it that's just kind of cool. In any event, in the new Brave New World of Kickstarter, a couple of years ago, he kickstarted just a book called Kaladar, which was a systemless setting book. Uh, he had hacks for it in like Savage Worlds and Pathfinder and a whole bunch of things uh, that you could get as you know freebies off of his website. And it's it's set up like the Princess Ark. The first half of the source book is a long novelette, essentially, about the crew of a flying ship who totally aren't the crew members of the Princess Ark, but it's totally the crew members of the Princess Ark. Shh. <laughs> and uh, they're exploring this strange new world that they find themselves in with no memories of their past lives because it's, again, totally not the people of the Princess Ark. This is completely new characters here. Uh, last year, he did a book about all the gods of Kaladar, and then this is his 2017 release, uh, Dreams of the Airy. It is set, and this is the best part, so I've already mentioned that there's flying ships. This is a, a literal flying circus. <laughs> like Monty Python flying circus, this is a flying circus. The big top, the rides, all of the sideshows is on the top deck of a giant flying boat that floats around and performs their circus. And so there's like secret societies. Uh, the main, the beginning of the adventure, at the very least, is described as a murder mystery. It's a 124 page super adventure. The the point of it is like you know you're it's the it's the outline of a campaign that you can play, and there's not a lot of crunch involved. So it's just 124 pages mainly of story, which is kind of cool. The 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 backing levels are you know pretty. I mean, it's your, your typical RPG. So you've got like. $5 gets you access to the map, a digital map, actually, and the add-ons. 15 gets you all of the above plus a PDF of the adventure. $30 is a soft cover plus all of the above. 55 is the hard cover plus three poster maps, which the three poster maps are all the decks of the ship. So you get the top deck, the second deck, and then the, the maze-like third deck where all the evil happens, I'm assuming. And then for 150 you get all of the above plus poster maps that are labeled for your use. So they'll have um, poster maps that have, you know, a number key and all that on it. And on the opposite side, it'll just be blank. So the players can go like, I want to go there. 
And a printed cloth item of your choice, which can be maps of Kaladar, the holy symbols of the gods. There are a bunch of options. It's a it's pretty cool. So that and is, you get the author's autograph, and you do get the author's autograph. If a super adventure in a flying circus that's kind of setting neutral, because again, the whole thing takes place in this flying circus that can fly into your campaign as long as a flying circus sounds remotely reasonable in your campaign. I don't know. Check it out. Kaladar, Dreams of the Airy. Uh, it's on Kickstarter now. Just shy of funding. He's uh, at uh, 6200 of a goal of 7500 and that's with 23 days to go. So I think it's safe to say this is going to push over the edge. Yeah, and all the stretch goals are just to pad out the book a little bit more. He's going to add more arts, you know, more, you know, full-color art, more stuff, more maps, whatever. So, But the, the adventure is written, so it's not one of those things that you'll get into trouble with, like some Kickstarters I've seen where they haven't written the book when they do it. <laughs> all right, and last up is a board game called Epic The Awakening. This is just shy of funding. Uh, they're looking for $38,750, and they've got just shy of 23000 and I believe this is the first or second day that it's up, so it's looking like a pretty good shot to fund. The, the main game board is a giant island, and the island is going to be unique every time you play because the different components of the island are on tiles, which you pull from a bag as you play. There's a lot of resource management in the game, which I love. There's also a really cool endgame mechanic where everybody gets to draw two endgame cards at the beginning of the game. They're the only one that knows uh, how to trigger the endgame with those cards. So everybody has different endgame triggers, which is really interesting because you never know who might be close to, to triggering that endgame. Plays pretty quick, too. They're, they're saying that the whole thing plays in about 20 to 30 minutes. My favorite thing about this Kickstarter is... You can upgrade to the swanky version. Oh, man. How about that dragon? <laughs> yeah, that dragon's pretty awesome. I just love that they call it the, the swanky <laughs> edition. At least they know. They know what's up. <laughs> so, yeah, you get a dragon figure. You get more you know, three-dimensional pieces to your board, which is always fun. Uh, there's a Myths and Wonder mini expansion. The backing levels really aren't bad either. The base game is 49 bucks, which is really, really fair. Um, you can get the swanky upgraded one with the plastic tokens and the really big dragon for just ten dollars more, fifty nine. So that is Epoch: The Awakening. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's Epoch. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our very, very, very full news segment. After a quick message from our sponsors, we will be back with our deep dive when we visit Privateer Press's Widower's Wood. Watch out for those pine cones; they'll make a widow out of you. Oh my gosh. Bonky on the head. Captain, come in. It's a war zone out here. The trolls are about to overrun our position. There's casualties everywhere. No one can have a decent conversation without exploding into flame wars. I understand, sir. The other Mont and I are trying to hold them back. But no matter how many we ban, they just keep coming back in greater numbers! Captain, tell my wife, I... Freebooters Forums, a great place to chat with no trolls and no BS. All gaming, all the time. www.freebooters.com we love getting feedback, so please let us know how we're doing by doing one of the following. You can email us at fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash forgotmydice. We post all our articles there, so feel free to comment. Or you can message us directly via the Facebook Messenger. We also have Facebook comments enabled for all our posts at forgotmydice.com. 
You can also message us or tweet us on the Twitter. Find us at Forgot My Dice. You can join us on the Freebooter Network message boards. Find your way there by going to freebootersnetwork.com and click on the Freebooters forum. If you like the show, the best way for more people to find out about us is to give the Freebooters Network a review on iTunes. Lastly, for those of you listening from the depths of interstellar space, make sure you turn your controls 18 degrees to the left and flip the intensifier disc on and off again. Interstellar space? Yeah, they listen to podcasts on interocitors. <sighs> All right, and welcome back from the break. It is now time for our deep dive, and the game that we are covering today is... Well, I mean, we're going to go into it, but I really, really enjoyed it. And that is Widower's Wood from Privateer Press. The new hotness. So hot, I could not find... An intro paragraph to steal on the internet. <laughs> Everything I found was like, hey, we made our Kickstarter. Woo! And I'm like, that doesn't really work for us. I've got you. Widower's Wood is the newest board game from Privateer Press. Uh, it is, of course, set in the Iron Kingdom's universe, which is the universe that encompasses War Machine. It encompasses Hordes. It encompasses the, the Iron Kingdom's RPG line. And uh, it's pretty much their primary and, universe. And most cl- closely related, it is the same universe that the Undercity board game takes place in. Yes. And this is, of course, the, uh, the sequel to the Undercity board game. And also, I might add, fully compatible with the Undercity. In more ways than one, uh, Undercity is actually set in the city of Corvus. And guess where the Widower's Wood is? It's literally the forest that surrounds Corvus. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's kind of their in-canon explanation for why the, the two groups from both of, or from Undercity and this can kind of meet and merge up because, and in playing each other's games even, because they're kind of practically in the same spot. Let's talk about the game just in, in the basic sense. It, it's basically War Machine the board game. It yeah. uses a lot of the same rule conventions. You know, you, you roll two six-sided dice, adding a skill to the dice roll and trying to beat difficulty numbers. It's the same things. There's defense, there's armor. It, it basically, it borrows very heavily from both the Iron Kingdom's RPG system and from War Machines and Hordes and brings it all together in a narrative-based board game. So, And this is an adventure board game like your Descents yes. and like your Mansions of Madness. It's, it's that style of game. The game is broken up into seven chapters, and what you get is that you get a core board, which unfolds and you place on the table. And this board is just a grid of squares that are all uh, green because it takes place in the woods. Every single scenario has you laying out tiles on top of this grid that alter the grid to be the environment used for any particular scenario. Now, this can include things like rubble. It can include story-based items like a summoning circle. It basically completely changes the way the board works because different squares have different effects. Some prevent any kind of movement from happening on them whatsoever. Some provide bonuses for cover. That would be the the water squares, because if you have an amphibious character, he can jump in the water and instantly get plus two to his his defensive roll. And then you also have squares like the woods, which are very difficult terrain to, to navigate, which means that your turn ends the moment you enter one of those. But they also provide you a lot of cover for combat. And this is very different from the Undercity. It had walls, it had rough terrain, but a lot of its building elements where you were basically building a room in this dungeon. And you, you couldn't move through a lot of the elements. If there was a stone wall, you there was nobody with a special power of you yeah. know, Kool-Aid man burst through the stone wall. <laughs> so it's fairly significantly different. I kind of like it like that because it makes... 
I mean, it gives it a unique feel, even though it is the, the identical game at the core. Right, yeah, but it means that the limits that is set up by the terrain aren't actually limits, because you can move through it if you really yeah. want to. The core game ships with seven chapters, so that's seven different maps with seven different scenarios that you are working through, and they all string together into a single narrative. Uh, but there are a lot of expansion opportunities that are being released by Privateer Press. If you did happen to get the Kickstarter version, it came with a lot of extra figures and extra monsters that aren't worked into the narrative. And you can alter any of the scenarios by changing the spawn rules and adding those monsters in, which actually can make it harder. So that's kind of a neat way to, to kind of alter your game. And it also ships like interquill scenarios. Like I noticed one of them in there was called 1.5, which you play between 1 and 2, basically. Those are Kickstarter exclusives. Those, yeah, but those are Kickstarter exclusives. But they add in some of those figures, too. Yes, so. yes. And, and they did that for Undercity in No Quarter. They added in like intervening you know, scenarios that do other things so yeah I, it's it's pretty easy for them to expand it which is kind of nice yes given but you do have to buy their magazine to get it generally so you know but six to one half dozen of the other <laughs> but still it's it's a it's a really nicely modular system that allows for a lot of easy expansion and i also will say that it also allows for uh, user generated content very very easily which is neat so the the basic turn goes the very first thing that you do when you fire up your character is you spawn a monster. So monsters spawn a lot in this game because you murder a lot of monsters in this game. Yes. That happens a lot too. And, and I think that's really neat because the, the board is never sparsely populated. There's always something going on, which is, it, it adds to the tension of the game, I think. And since spawning is random, uh, the way you do it is uh, there's six spawn points generally on the map and you just roll a six-sided dice and it means a monster comes out of that spawn point. And then what monster comes out of the spawn point? Well, at the beginning of the game, you have piles of monsters and you just, uh, you know, you line up little tokens, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six in front of them. So, like, in our in our first scenario we played... There were three different types of monsters. There were three different types of monsters. One got us one thing, two got us something else, and then three, four, five, six got us, you know, the goons, basically. Yeah. So goons were much more likely to spawn. Monsters are divided up into red monsters and blue monsters, and that just tells you priority, because the, the AI system that the game has will say, blue monsters do this, red monsters do that. You know, some, sometimes it calls them out. The red and the blue distinction isn't, isn't like, a huge deal. No, it's no, just no. it's just something there to get further give the game a little bit more dynamic play because if if it says spawn a blue blah and you do not have a blue blah that means instead a blue monster of the same type activates on the field instead so yes it's just a way to keep the ai kind of fresh and moving and you can't always plan out everything in advance because sometimes the random elements will just throw you a curveball and something will jump on you when you're not expecting it second phase is you activate your character um it's kind of like uh, iron kingdoms you know you can move you can attack you but you activate your character fully then the third phase of every player's turn is something attacks and there's a villainy deck and you just flip over a card and it just says something like two blue fishmen attack or two of this or two of that or something. It'll just tell you what to do. And then at the bottom of the cards that explain the monsters and their statistics, it has an order of operations of what they will do. So typically, for example, the goon fishmen. And, and these are canned actions, it should be said. There are a number of different icons on the bottom of the card that correspond to specific actions that are detailed in the instructions. Yeah, and it's an order of operations. So, for example, the fishmen, the first thing they'll do is, like, if they're in a square with another player, they'll attack them. The second thing was that they would charge, and they could move two squares, and if they get into combat with somebody, then they'll, they'll try to stick them. And if that doesn't happen, then they'll, if they can't charge anybody because they can't see anybody or there's nobody, then they'll just rush, which means they'll just move two squares towards the nearest player and the way or not necessarily nearest player there's a, a the card determines so it'll say like if all these things fail it'll go towards the player on your the character of the player on your left 
or you know or you or something and there's always a, a thing at the card that tells you how the monster will behave yeah. if nothing else comes up so the ai deck is actually really kind of neat because it controls both movement and attacks and the way they've got it balanced out everything is lethal and everything will move at you some monsters are obviously minions and they are shoved into battle on a regular basis like the the low level bog trogs but the cool thing is the monsters that are not minions they have rules around wanting to group up with others and so instantly they'll follow the minions into battle but they'll always be with a group which is really kind of neat yeah, yeah, the bog trogs, that, that was one of their things. If and, and if they're with a group, they can they have an action where they can goad, which means that a fishman in their square will activate in its in its place, which yeah, you know, I mean it, it means that the fishmen are always at the back of a conga line of villainy that's coming at you. <laughs> so the characters, the game ships with four. If you got the Kickstarter, you got four extra. Uh, the basic characters are a feral lady, a frog guy, a druid, and a tharn. They all have different abilities. Typically, what you have is um, you have like basically one ability that's on your sheet. That's just something special they do. I was playing the frog dude. His name's Olo. He can throw gourd bombs. And so basically, I had a choice when I lobbed a gourd bomb at something that I could do one of three effects. And I had to choose when I did it. Other characters have abilities that they have to announce at the beginning of the turn. For science's sake, because it says that Undercity is completely compatible with uh, Widower's Wood and vice versa, I played a, a Undercity character because... It's not because I like trolls. It's because it was science. <laughs> no, you like trolls. Shut up. So, uh, But the troll had a thing <laughs> where he had to pick one of three things at the beginning of the turn, and it gave him like a static buff until the beginning of his next turn. Then everybody also has what they call a feat. And one of the things you get is you get feat cards. You can play any number of them you want during play, but you only get to draw one at the end of your turn, and you can only have a maximum of three. So it encourages you to at least spend one on your turn. Yeah. And they just have kind of a random benefit. And so, oh, well, there's there's two benefits per card. Yeah. So there, you you have to choose from them, and one is generally a benefit aimed at combat, and one is a benefit aimed at kind of life and management. Both of my guys were DPSers. There was mainly it was just mainly murdering. Oh, okay. Although one of them was healing, but yeah, like you know, you get things like counter charge, where if something ends its movement near you, you can move into its square and whack it. Make extra They're attacks. They're thematic. I yeah, guess, yeah, the yeah. Best way and, and that's the thing too. The, the the feat decks are unique to the characters, oh, so yes. they, they are very built around their theme. So Olo had a lot of stuff where he makes his dagger poisonous and goes and stabs people more. And he was like, he was he was kind of rad. Like he was just hopping around with his dagger, like murdering fools. I, yeah. I was I was using him as like an assassin, like from Assassin's Creed. Which is Creed. interesting because he's by far the squishiest of the characters. Yeah, but he's he's got a pretty high defense too. So he's yeah. kind of he's 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 a dodgy little guy. And then uh, I was playing the big troll, and the big troll had a lot of like protection based things. Like if I, I had a feat card where I was sharing a square with a person, and it said like straight up. If somebody gets attacked in your square, you can play that card and they'll attack you instead. And the troll was really easy to hit, but he had really high armor, so he was hard to hit. And his special ability is if he burns a feat card, any of his feat cards, he can heal two hit points in lieu of doing any of its effects. Yeah. Everybody else doesn't have that ability. They don't have an ability no, to self-heal. specifically the troll. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the frog had, he could make an extra dagger attack. So yeah, the troll guy was very, very tanky because he could heal very easily. And uh, Olo had feat cards that said you can heal a health. But the troll ha- always had heal two health at any time, yeah. pretty much. So the characters feel unique. They have very specific roles. Th- that's actually one of my favorite aspects of both this game and the Undercity, is how unique the characters feel. Because like you said, they have their feet decks, which are 100% unique. And then there is a character progression system. As you do damage to enemy characters, you take XP. Exp- 
experience points and put them in a pool that you then spend at the end of a well, you, chapter. You, you divide it at the end of the chapter. Yeah. The experience pool is 100% shared by the, the party. And then you even as evenly as possible, you divide that at the end of the chapter. And everybody can then buy additional actions that they can take on their turn. And again, just like the feats, those are all 100% tailored to the individual character. And it's, it's not just actions, too, because I was flipping through Olo's deck. And Olo's deck had, uh, he gets an extra armor because he gets extra turtle shells yeah. to put on his back. It's actions, it's effects, it's... The, the um, troll one, he had, his really expensive, awesome one was instead of picking one ability at the beginning of every turn, he gets to pick two. Yeah, which is awesome. Which is awesome. I'm like seriously thinking about saving up for that. But it's, it's really cool because everybody's progression is also tied very much into their, into their deck. And generally, I've noticed, just kind of flipping through it, there's kind of two different builds you can go with. Yes. Um, the troll, basically, he has he can get tanky abilities or he can get smashy abilities. Olo, ha- basically, it was he can make his... He can do more stuff with his gourds or he can do more stuff with murder and fools with his dagger. It's kind of cool that there's builds and, and then you can do one thing. Do you really specialize and go really one way? Do you dabble you in can, both? Yeah, or you can go for the less expensive upgrades in cross-spec. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of replayability, and it, it really I, it makes me want to play the campaign of this so bad. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, just picking out extra abilities, and it's like, oh, I'm going to have this in the next game. And, and yeah, like uh, like at the end of the game, uh, I was trying to figure out what I was going to spend my XP on. And I, I didn't spend anything on Olo, because I want to save up for a, an 8 XP ability on Olo. But the troll I picked, uh, if he charges, he ignores rough terrain. So I can, you know, move two spaces into rough terrain to go smash people instead Which of just one. Which makes him particularly deadly, I might add. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was a really cheap ability. And, and part of me makes it makes me think there's not... A, I remember there not being a lot of rough terrain in Undercity, so maybe it's kind of busted in Widower's Wood, but we'll find out if we keep playing. <laughs> so let's talk about how it plays, Robert. Now, now that we've covered kind of the basics of the rules, let, let's talk about just basic actions and whatnot how, how did it flow for you it reminded me a lot of war machine it's 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 a very stripped down version of war machine you yes. know it's you're playing essentially a super solo and you and know a lot I mean, of dice chucking which i like yeah yeah it works really well for an adventure game once we got going we could probably crank one out i'd say in two hours maybe oh which, yeah which absolutely. is pretty typical for a game of that Cause, type cause we we did a lot of manual checking the first time through and and mind you we've both played the undercity pretty extensively but um, it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. It has been a while. So there is a fair amount of crunch to the game, it should be said. So that there's a lot of little finicky rules that uh, you will need to learn, but none of them are outlandish and none of them are tough to learn. They all make sense. But I think that's a thing worth mentioning. It, there is a lot of rules. And given there are a lot of tactical options in the game, which I also like. Yeah, this and, is and a it's considerably scratch- more tactical game than any other than any other adventure game on the market. Because if I look at Descent... Descent has light tactics, but its primary focus is adventuring. And if I look at uh, Imperial Assault, it's the same because it's, you know, Descent a generation removed. The name of the game, it's much like War Machine. It's building synergies and combos within your party. It's like, oh, I can knock this guy down on my turn and hopefully he doesn't get back up because I'll go, you know, a little bit later and, uh, you know, I'll be able to jump on him and do this thing. And there's or Olo had an ability to flare people, which makes them easier to hit. So it's like, okay, I'll flare for the rest of you guys because we were playing two other characters who had guns or ranged attacks, and it, and it helped you two out because generally you two were next in initiative order. Yeah. There's a lot of tactical options. It is a very crunchy game. Yeah, and there is a fair amount of stat math too. So you are always chucking two dice base, uh, but there are a lot of effects that can allow you to add a die to that roll uh, based on feats, based on uh, environmental effects, and based on uh, abilities that you've purchased or have nascently. There is a fair amount of stat checking as well because you need to check your stat for an attack 
And if you hit the attack, then you need to check against a different stat for uh, whether or not it actually lands a wound. Then you are cross-checking that against stats on the critter to see if if and when you hit and, and how much damage is done. The basics are you roll to hit. Uh, you check your accuracy is what they call it in this game, which is generally between 5 and 7, I noticed, on most characters. So basically you roll 2d6, you add your accuracy. If it meets or exceeds the target's defense, then you hit. Yep. Or, the, or the enemy hits you because you have defense as well. It, the same thing works. And then you roll the weapon's power, and you roll again. And if you beat the armor stat of the thing you are attacking, you give it a wound. If you beat it by five, you give it two wounds. Yes. So you're, you're never doing more than one to two points of damage any given round. Except if you have a card that says otherwise. Exactly. Which I totally exactly. had on my troll. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not surprised because that makes sense. He's, he hits hard. Yeah, so overall, it is a fairly crunchy game for an adventure game. But that being said, you can learn it pretty quick, and I, I think it plays very very fun and very quick, especially once you've, you've had an opportunity to do two or three rounds and you really learn the basics. And, and like War Machine, the, the underlying dice mechanic is, you know, it's roll 2d6 and add stuff. Like, once you start kind of getting that in your head, it's pretty easy to kind of just crank it out. So, Jonathan, here comes the favorite part of the segment. I get this all the time, feedback and whatnot. The eternal question. How is that rule book? How should I put this? Um, this is one of the better rule books that I've seen for an adventure game. It spells things out in a very logical order, and it's very easy to follow. There's a fantastic index in the back for looking up specific keywords, which we used extensively uh, yes, our we first did. time through. And there's also a lot of great callouts with all the symbols that you need for figuring out what goes where. Now, that being said, there's a major miss. The game ships with a shortcut sheet specifically for dealing with villains and enemies what it lacks is a shortcut sheet for dealing with basic combat and basic actions and that just seems like a miss it could have been on the back cover it could have been a call out card just like the villain one and it not being there makes you spend a lot more time flipping through the rule book than you should have needed to obviously they were thinking about it in one respect they just didn't follow through on the other respect and it's it's such an easy thing to overcome. That's my only complaint. But that being said, the rule book is, is very clear. Uh, it does a good job of bolding out keywords, which I really appreciate because when you're scanning a page looking for an answer, it's easy to find. Well, and the index for keywords is really nice because we had that problem in Mansions of Madness because they were yes. talking about something. It's like, was that a keyword or was that just fluff? And you know, no, this is very clear. It was never difficult to find the answer to any of our questions, and that that really says a lot about a rule. Especially because, as we mentioned, the game is a little bit crunchier. Mm-hmm. So, just being able to to crank out those answers, yes, it it means less time page flipping. So yeah. that was good. Now, something that was generally not a miss: those figures in that thing are so good. Wow! Privateer Press uses a different kind of plastic than everybody else. There's something gummier about it. What I like about it is it makes them more tolerant in the box because there is no real box management in the box. It's a uh, fantasy flight style Death Star Trench. Death Star Trench. Yeah. These hold up very, very well. There's less droopy swords. There's less droopy spears. And when they are, the gumminess of them lets you kind of straighten them out a lot easier. They are beautiful, beautiful miniatures. Now, I will say this as a longtime Privateer Press player. All of those minis exist in the uh, the War Machine thing. They but you saw a lot of subtle differences. There are quite a few subtle differences. But, for example, the, the troll I played from Undercity, they have a model called the, uh, the Trollkin Warders. And he's a Trollkin Warder, but he, instead of having the big old crazy axe or hammer that the Warders typically come with, 
There's another model that uses the same exact body, <laughs> but different arms, basically, and different heads. So it's it's just a different arm with an axe instead of their big, crazy, you know, two-handed axe with a shield. Because trolls, that's what they do. That's one of the things I noticed they do. They take they take their existing figures and they just tweak them just a hair on the the Ironback Spitter that was part of your Kickstarter stuff. I didn't yeah. notice anything different. It was just no. He looks exactly like the other one. Yeah, on the Tazzle Worm that comes in the box, it has a little like fringe on the top of its head that isn't on the one that I own. That's a metal one, uh, part of Dolly and Scarith. There are a few subtle little differences, but then again, I could, in general, I know I know where the parts came from too. They weren't like stretching, but then again, you know, you're a freaking model company with a catalog of, I'm sure at this point, thousands of models. Like, why would you reinvent the wheel if you just need to make an Ironback Spitter or a Gatorman? You just do it, you know? Well, and, and it fits into the world so perfectly. Right, right, and it's supposed to be the same things. I mean, technically, you know, I mean, it it, it is supposed to be straight up. You know, when you get the Ironback Spitter, when the adventure calls for an Ironback Spitter, it's an Ironback Spitter. It's the same model that's in War Machine. Like, it's, yeah. it's supposed to be the same exact critter. So I know that will irritate some people where it's just like, oh, this is just this model I already own with, like, a spear <laughs> instead of a fish hook. So, I mean, I think from a quality perspective, these are top tier. It is a, a step above what Simon offers. And that, that says a lot because Simon minis are beautiful. They really do a good job. But these are better. They hold the fine detail better. And they're, they're really, really pretty. And so their plastic process, whatever it is, is awesome. So uh, what you get in the box, you get the four basic heroes you get in the box. In the expansion box, you got four more. And again, a lot of these were just, you know, like one of them was Linus Arissal, which is a hero that you can play. She's a Nis ice sorceress, and you can just get her. You know, that, that is actually something that is new. Um, there is no magic in the Undercity. And yeah, this that's has true. magic. And, yeah, that's and right. There are some new rule sets around magic, which really helps to kind of differentiate it from the Undercity. Yeah, yeah. And then in the basic game, you basically get a lot of swamp critters. So you get bog trogs, which are fishmen, basically, and and they suck. They suck in War Machine. You you don't you don't take them because they're good. You take them because you can take a lot of them for cheap. <laughs> yeah, they're they're a spamming force. Yeah, you get a couple mist speakers, which are their priests, which their their priests are actually kind of scary. And you get a lot of Gatormen. And then you get a random undead dude. And Gatormen are exactly what you think. In in the Iron Kingdoms, they do not have alligators like you and I know them. They have alligators that walk upright and curse you and, you know, do things before they try to eat you. In the expansion content, you got some new monsters. and But that, that was it. They come in red and they come in blue. And then the, the basically the boss monsters come in purple. In Widower's Wood, or in the Undercity game, you were not a big fan of that board. No, because it didn't need to be as boring as it was. But you felt differently about the the Widower's Wood board. In Widower's Wood, they do a great job with the scenery tiles. They look beautiful. There's a lot of little fine details in there that make the world seem more alive. Well, the terrain types in general are more varied because you got forests, yeah. you got you know ruins, you got and they really pools pop of water off of the basic board, which yeah. really helps to to kind of set up the world. It, of course, it comes with cards of all sorts. The cards are cards. There's yeah, not- they're a good quality. They're decently heavy card stock. I wish they were linen finished, but that's you, you about my say, own You say that every time. Because I wish they were linen finished. <laughs> if they can do it in Pandemic, they can do it in another board game. And then you get a lot of tokens. I wouldn't say it's quite a Fantasy Flight level of tokens. No, no, not at all. So the greatest thing about this game, Robert, is that there is no recommended player count. It goes from one to four. It scales perfectly because you basically use all four heroes every time, and you just adjust the number of heroes to the number of people in the game. So, of course, that brings us to the uh, the eternal question, Robert. Is it fun to play? Yeah. I mean, obviously. I, I don't think we've had a game that isn't fun to play. Because in general, if we're going to do a review and spend a lot of time on it, because if we do spend some time on the games we play, 
we're probably not going to play a game that we hate. Very true. <laughs> yeah. Very true. I haven't played a lot of adventure games, so I don't have a huge basis of comparison. Um, I've only, honestly, in that genre, I think Mansions of Madness is the only game I've actually played. Now, I've, I've owned uh, the original Doom, and, and actually I own the original Descent, so I've read a few. Uh, oh, I played Level 7, actually, their other adventure game. Oh, yeah, there you go. I like this one because I don't like the GM player. That was the thing I liked least about Level 7. So I like that there's an AI in this game. I like that, as I've said many a time, the spike thing comes out and, and I get angry and yelling at a board doesn't hurt anybody's feelings. You can all have you know a kumbaya moment of yelling at the board if that comes up. I like War Machine, and it had just enough War Machine in it that it was like kind of scratching that itch. I do like tactical combat if, if that's the thing. You know, I've, I've talked a bit before about how I didn't like 4th Edition because 4th Edition had way too much tactical combat because every combat was like super-duper intense like that. Mm-hmm. But when you're playing a board game or a miniature game or something where you're going into that in that mindset that you're not going to, you know, spend an hour role-playing and then an hour in a, a crazy combat, you know, it's it's nice. I liked it. I liked the game a lot. So, I mean, that's the only thing I would say. Your your mileage will vary basically on how much crunch and how much tactical combat you want in your board game. If that sounds fun, you'll probably like it. And if that is like, oh, that doesn't sound fun at all, then, yeah, you probably want to reach for something else. I agree with a lot of the things that you said. I think that the combat is one of the highlights of this game because it is more tactical than the vast majority of dungeon crawlers out there. It's surprisingly deep considering how simple the rules really are, especially around the environment, it goes very, very deep and very, very quickly. It does not take very many rounds of upping your character until you have this huge bag of tricks to really apply in combat. And it really changes and makes it dynamic. And that's really awesome. I, like you, really like the co-op aspect of it. I think it's phenomenal that there is no GM. I know a lot of people like that one versus many gameplay. I'm not a fan. If I can get rid of the GM and have just a fully cooperative game, that makes it better for me. That's one of the main reasons I love that Descent app so much. Gets rid of the GM. I love how often things are spawning because it makes it feel tense. There's there's never a moment of respite in the game. Yeah, ultimately what you end up with here is a unique game. It's going to be compared to Descent. It's going to be compared to Zombicide. And it's not like either of those games. It's considerably more tactical considerably more progressive there's definitely an rpg flavor to it and that makes a lot of sense because one of the 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 neatest things that you can do with this game is that all of the bits in the game can be used in the iron kingdom's rpg system yeah because if you notice on the bases of all the miniatures they actually are little hash marks yeah. yeah they determine your facing because in the rpg and in war machine which way your character is pointed matters because you can't do stuff to things that are behind you but in this game that doesn't apply but they put that in there just just in case you want to use it for that You'll, you'll have a marker for where the thing is pointed. And I think that's fantastic because it just gives you a little more value add. I also like how modular it is. I like how you can actually increase the difficulty very easily. I think that this game does a really good job of polishing some issues I had with Undercity and really kind of presenting the best version of itself. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. And, and I, have, I have nothing bad that I can say about the game. I just really, really enjoy it. And the other thing that you should know getting into it is that this takes place in a very fully formed, fully functional world with a lot of history. You Um, you can go deep down that rabbit hole. Yes. Does it work standalone? Yes. But if you know some of the history and know some of the the ways that the world works, you're going to get a lot more out of this. It does a really good job of setting up the characterizations of every single individual character. The the, the last thing that I will kind of mention, and this is kind of an off-color comment, is that you'll need a relatively large table. There are, are, are a lot of components at work here. The The game board itself is rather large. It folds six times. Yes. And watching you try to do that was hilarious. You rat bastard. <laughs> <laughs> 
so it does it, it gobbles up your table uh the between the character sheets between all of the information on the villains you have the two decks that yeah. each character needs the pile of tokens it just gobbles up table space so just make sure you have a good sized table for it well i think that brings us to the end of our deep dive robert and i think it's safe to say that that widowers wood really is very successful we, we were talking about playing a campaign yes which is awesome well i'm maybe, totally down yeah maybe we'll play another game of it and do a deep dive widowers wood part two electric boogaloo Sure. I, I say we get to the end of the campaign and then we revisit it. I don't know if we'll have time for that. We'll talk. We'll talk. We'll figure this out. We'll figure this out. So that is Widower's Wood from Privateer Press. If you did not get a copy of the Kickstarter version, they have yet to release a date for when it'll be hitting retail, but I'm sure it'll be there. Is this going to be real soon, Blizzard soon, or Valve soon? But the box has a barcode on the back, so they're obviously intending to do that at some point. So expect it when you see it. All right, well, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. This is number 21 in the books, Robert. We're, like, legal now. We can vote and drink. (laughs) Once again, we urge you to join us on all of our digital domains, the Freebooters forums, our Facebook page, Twitter. If you're a patron, you can hit us up on Patreon. Yes. You know, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you're getting on the table, and we'd love to hear your opinions. You can private message on Pinterest. Just saying. Twitter, you can private message on Twitter. You can just point at us on Twitter. Nerdbro, Nerdbro, my man. He likes a lot of our tweets. So join Nerdbro and join the conversation online. We'd love to hear from you. And beyond that, Robert, any final thoughts? Yes. Happy Father's Day, Jonathan. Hey, happy Father's Day to you too. It was yesterday, but bladed or whatever. I didn't see you yesterday. I did see you. Liar! We played Liar! I forgot we played board games. Yes, we did. That was a good Father's Day. I forgot to ask you yesterday. Did your kids get anything cool? Yes, so in a perfect example of how my children think, I was given a several items ranging from handmade ceramics, which are always appreciated. I now have a new key bowl. And uh, I also received several hand-drawn items, including zombies from Lincoln, hmm. um, several hearts and happy faces from Sophia. In one of the more artistic expressions from the children, I received a handmade card with a hand-drawn unicorn, and a rainbow background, and I was informed that that is the rainbow that the unicorn is pooping out. They That's, make good soft serve, yeah, that unicorn poo. That That is basically the the way my children think. Awesome. And I had a good Father's Day because I got to play board games with them. We sat down and played a bunch of Zombicide, so that was fun. Awesome, awesome. Well, I, on the other hand, I got a Leatherman keychain, which turns into pliers, and a little Ooh, dinky nice. knife, and a little dinky scissors, which I, I lost my old one, so that's good to have. Oh, and a screwdriver. That's actually kind of why I wanted it, because I always get frustrated when I can't find a screwdriver. <laughs> and I also got... So uh, apparently in uh, in my daughter's school, they made a card, but like school's been out for a couple weeks now, So that I, and I, I know when they made this card. Did it go missing? No, no. Well, I, f- I found it, but <laughs> I, I put it back where I found it, because I'm like, oh, I was not supposed to see this. I will put it back where I found it. But I remember this one day, my daughter came home, and she's like daddy don't worry about me and i'm like why why what did you do and she's like oh you see this this paint i just stepped in paint but my teacher helped me clean it off and i'm like okay why are you telling me this i didn't even notice but whatever you know pat her on the head whatever kid you know because kids say the weird things and then i I, she got me like this little poem which uh somebody was cutting onions while i was reading that poem because i was getting a little misty-eyed and it had her footprint on it i'm like ah you bad liar you had to like call it out that you it's you know there's nothing weird going on here with my foot, Daddy. Don't even think about it. <laughs> I'm like, well, at least I know what kind of liar you are, uh, Eowyn. But yeah, no, uh, I had a good Father's Day. I got that. My buddy brought over Sour Patch Kids, which are my kryptonite. I can't oh, stop eating them. 
They shred my tongue and rot my teeth out, but I can't stop eating them. Anyway, so, happy Father's Day, sir. Thank you. Same to you. Well, to all the mothers and fathers out there, happy belated Father's and Mother's Day to all of you. And we will catch you on the next episode, episode 22, coming in a couple weeks. Yes. Hopefully not oddly delayed. Until then, party on, Robert. Party on, Jonathan. The music you heard in this podcast was Intro by Elephiel and Retro Funk by Persephone, both used with permission via the Creative Commons license. 